Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Friends, we're so happy you're here with us. Thank you for joining us today on this great topic of evil, a brief biography with Dr. Johnny Schnitzer who is probably the only PhD in Jewish philosophy, focusing on medieval Kabbalah, who can say that he once beat the head of Israeli naval commandos in a swimming race. His dissertation focused on the scientific Kabbalah of Rabbi Joseph Ben Shalom Ashkenazi. Johnny's forthcoming book is about Ashkenazi's Kabbalah, as well as a critical edition of the Kabbalist Majestic Commentary on Sefer Yetzirah. Johnny's also the author of Mossad Thriller, the Way Back, which paints a picture of contemporary Israel. Johnny also orchestrated the publishing of an English edition of the Hitler Haggadah, an important piece of Moroccan Jewish history from the Holocaust. Johnny has also taken on several leadership roles in the Jewish world, including advisor to the CEO of Birthright and executive manager with Stand With Us. He lectures on a wide variety of topics relating to Judaism and Israel, especially about the untold stories and unspoken heroes of Jewish history. Johnny's happily married with four gorgeous little kids, lives in Israel, and thinks that Australian rules football is the greatest sport ever invented. So, Dr. Johnny Schnitzer, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rabbi Shmuley. Thank you for that wonderful welcome. Uh, uh, good afternoon or good evening, everyone. I think when we come to talk about the um, the topic of evil, um, one must one must prelude this with with, with a few hakdamot, uh, with a few introductions. The first one, and perhaps the title is misleading, um, we are not going to pretend that we can uh, really portray a biography of evil and its origins. What we can do is take an exciting journey uh, back in time to understand perhaps the, the brief biography of the narrative of evil. That is to say, we're going to look, we're going to start with the Bible, because we really do want to sort of try and understand something about evil in the Bible, Ra or Roa. And then we're going to take, you know, as, as we've done in the past, we're going to go through, you know, there are many different ways in this, in which this biography could be written. And perhaps that's another thing that should be said. We could, we could go along with the philosophers. We could go with the Kabbalists. We could go with Europe. We could go with North Africa. And you're going to get a different picture. You're going to get a picture that changes. You're going to get a picture that, that at times creates a confluence and at times uh, creates disruption. Um, the path we're going to take is going to go, we're going to start with the Bible. We're going to shift to the port city, the bustling port city of Alexandria. We're going to see what my, Moses Maimonides, as a sort of representative of rationalism or philosophy, had to say about evil. And then we're going to move on to Provence, to, to France and medieval Spain, to Soraya. We're going to shift then to Barcelona to see how this was perceived in Jewish mysticism amongst our mystics and Kabbalists. Another thing that I must say is uh, uh, this isn't a dispopular topic. That is to say that the, the, the topic of evil, the very touchy, sensitive topic, which, by the way, is associated with, but not to mistake for, why bad things happen to good people and so on and so forth. We're not here to discuss that. We're not here to talk about the moral ramifications and understanding or underpinnings of why bad things happen. We actually really want to try and understand how evil has been depicted. Is evil an actual existing ontology in and of itself, 
right? Is there mamash, as we say? Is there really evil in the world? In its own existence, much like this cup exists, that there is actual evil? Or is evil, evil perhaps some form of cloaking or masking of something else that is way closer to ourselves? Is it this? Is it that? Is it, is it a, is a mixture of the two? Um, so let's, let's start. Uh, and another thing that I want to do here is because this is such a popular topic, is to try and bring to my mind some of the most important views, some known, and we're going to try and, you know, wax them a little differently, and some unknown and that should be known when we come to discuss evil. So let's start with the Bible. Now, by the way, this image in the background, and this is perhaps the last thing that I should say as an introduction. What does one choose when one comes to present about evil, evil, to teach a class about evil? What image do you choose? As we're going to see, this is the birth of evil. The narrative of evil is one of the greatest branding case studies in the history of both divine and corporal worlds. And as such, what does one choose? <laughs> does one choose Satan if there is such a thing? And where does such a thing begin? Does one choose an angel of death? Does one choose Edgar Allan Poe's raven? Which, which I, for Kabbalistic reasons, I went with Poe. I really thought that Poe hit the nail on the head. He clearly, he, he knew his Kabbalah. Uh, but but it's a complicated question. What What is evil? And that really is what we're, as I said, we're not going to try and answer what is evil. We're not that pretentious, but we, we, we want to understand how evil has been perceived. And as such, perhaps to say something about God. Okay. So if we had to choose a verse in the Bible, and, and you know, you're going to see many different classes on evil. And as I said, this, this is a story being told. I'm, I'm convinced. And if you look from, it doesn't matter who is teaching, there is always going to be a different verse in the Bible. So I want to explain what drove me to choose this verse as to my mind, you know, according to perhaps what my Neshama or soul got in Mount Sinai, I hope, is where I think the story begins. Right. And this is the, the beginning and end of where I'm going to talk about anything to do with what I think is perhaps the, 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 the earliest point of primordial evil. And from then on, it's, it's strictly narrative. But even here, we're going to embed this with, with our narrative. Because when you think about the Bible, you think of Cain and Abel, right? A brother kills another brother. Supposedly, that seems evil. But there's also a reason why that happens, right? This is, why do we have a judicial system? But because not everyone is guilty and because, you know, but bad things happen and because sometimes people are raised and see certain things that scar them. It's, it's as we said, why bad things happen and what caught the men's, you know, what makes people do things, bad things is a difficult question. So I didn't choose to start with the first murder in history, nor with the first rape. I, I, I wanted to start with the first representative, not of the word ra evil in the Bible, but to my mind, the first evil intent. And, and, and one could argue that there, that, that, that there are naughty stuff happening even before this verse, but, but, but I'd argue, and we can leave it for, for afterwards, that it, it starts here. So we have uh, 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 Adam and Eve, we have our first creation, we have our second creation, and then we are told, enter the serpent, the Nachash. Now, the serpent, yada yada, says to the woman, did perhaps God say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, this verse to my mind is fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating because 
right? Spoken from the throat of the snake, who we do not yet know what or who he is. What does this verse come to tell us? It boasts, it claims an intent of God, right? This is fascinating. A confluence, an intermingling of God and the snake, whoever he or she be, are intermingled together. Did perhaps God say? And then we are told that not only is is there God's presence in this verse, literally, but there is also a, a, a confusing, a misleading claim relating to God's intent. And of course, then trying to lead someone astray because we know what the verses earlier on had to say. And this is deception. Right. So 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 we have here our snake. And, and, and it's interesting because when we see, you know, a lot of translations of the of the Bible, when it says Nahash Arum, right, literally a naked snake, all of a sudden lost in translation, forget about ever reading again about the naked snake. We now read about the cunning snake. He's the most cunning of all animals, even though he is described as the most naked, whatever that means. What does that mean that he is naked and bare? This is a very, very difficult verse to understand. So this this perhaps can be seen as the start. This at least is my start, because it really does mesh between the serpent, between God, and it does so through echoing a commandment given by God, what you should be doing, claiming this is actually perhaps what God wanted through a question mark. Okay. Now, if we then shift, we fast forward now, because like, you know, many different evils and, and, you know, and there's Pharaoh and there's Amalek, even Pharaoh and the Amalek. One could argue that there is a justification for, 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 for Pharaoh. He's afraid. You can call it xenophobia, but you could also say he sees what's going to happen. He's a political analyst, a political beast. He worries for the future of his people. We can say this is moral. This is immoral. Can we understand something? There is something. Unlike the snake, there is no understanding for why the snake did what he did. Why say what he said? And the same goes for Amalek. There's a lot lost in translation. There are a lot of bits we don't. And the Midrash takes control, right? The Agada tells us, fills in the gaps. And then one one questions, well, you know, so but but, but, but what what happened at the starting point? So we have at the start of the snake. Okay. And then to make things more complicated or perhaps clearer, in Deuteronomy, towards the end of the book, we're told, see, I, this is God now speaking. If our first narrator, our first voice was the serpent talking about God, now our second instance, before we move on to our ports, bustling ports the city of Alexandria, we now have God himself talking. Perhaps in a, in a fast forward of five books, he suddenly says, I've placed before you today the life and the good and the death and the evil. I've placed them in front of you. I've done this. And then we come to ask, well, if you did this, if God did this, it's fascinating what happens to us when we read the snake, because it seems that every year over in Genesis, I don't know about you, I know about myself, I know about myself, my kids, my, my wife, we fall into the trap of, 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 of viewing the snake branded as he is, as this evil character trying to disrupt everything. And yet here we are told, it's not as simple as that. It's not even presented that way. God tells us, it's all me. It's all me. And to to be clear, to make no mistake, there are many that quote, by the way, uh, um, Isaiah, because he talks about, right, God who creates good and creates evil. But this is God himself quoting, I create life and good and death and evil. It all comes from me. So what are we meant to do with this? What are we meant to do with this when we have hardships in our lives? What are we meant to do with 
with questions or nightmares of whether demons exist. And if they do exist, what, what is their purpose? I'm not even going to get into the Holocaust. As I said, I don't want this is, you know, 40, 45 minutes isn't enough to get into why bad things happen. We just want to focus on that, that root, that source and its narrative. So as a sort of introduction, a biblical introduction, I've chosen purposely two verses, which to my mind seem to be ones that aren't always the, the, the sort of, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, obvious suspects. But, but, but these are two interesting verses that create a contrast, a very clear contrast. And we're going to see as we take this journey between our, our rationals, because at the end of the day, all of us are somewhere between the philosophers and the Kabbalists. We're sort of a confluence of both. Uh, um, we're going to see how how the, this, this narrative becomes, uh, uh, how the plot thickens. Okay. So let's now move on to, uh, uh, to Moses Maimonides. Right? We're now, we're, we're way, we fast forwarded. Much has happened in Jewish history. We've had many, we had much good, we've had much evil, we've had a first temple, we've had a second temple, it's been ruined over jealousy, over hatred, we've been banned and kicked out of our land, there's been hope, we've been come back, and somewhere in the middle of all this narrative, where evil is a part of the plot, and the question we ask is, you know, this, 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 regarding this narrative and the, 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 the role, we're trying to understand if the personas dramatis of evil where does he stand? Where does she stand? Is she on the good side or on the bad side? What's going on? So let's see what Maimonides has to say. This is, by the way, in, in, so this is in the third part of the guide. Uh, you know, after we've established, you know, uh, uh, how God creates the world, we've understood, you know, the essence of God. The third part is sort of, you know, sort of miscellaneous different ideas that, you know, that, that people think about and are bothered by until this very day, including evil. This is, by the way, taken from the, the, the really the gorgeous translation of the late Professor Shlomo Pines, um, Chicago University Press. So the first species of evil, he's going to talk to us about three types of evil. He's going to make it very, very clear. And it's sort of a rude awakening. The first species of evil is that which befalls man because of the nature of coming to be and passing away. I mean to say because of his being endowed with matter. Right? You want to understand the first reason why evil things, supposed evil or bad things happen. It's just because we are not at all spiritual. We have been created and as such, we are prone to decay and to, to you know, to destruction. Because of this, infirmities and paralytic afflictions befall some individuals, either in consequence of their original natural disposition, right? Someone who's born with, you know, deformed in some, some form or matter, or they supervene because of changes occurring in the elements such as corruption of the air or fire, thus the species of evil must necessarily exist. It's a law of nature. Make no mistake, according to Moses Maimonides, the first reason, right, people have been asking since the beginning of existence, since Cain and Abel, since what happened with the snake, why bad things happen, where did it all start? And he chooses his number one God created this world. This is, this is one of the laws that separate, that differentiate between us, us being the sort of highest of, of other species and things in the world, and, and, and the upper worlds are in God. It's the first one. The evils of the second kind are those that men afflict upon one another, such as tyrannical domination of some of them over others. These evils are more numerous than those belonging to the first kind, and the reasons for that are numerous and well known, right? I'm not going to tell you about about greed, about 
you know, power hungry individuals. This, this Maimonides says is you want to understand what is the reason for evil that is greater than the way in which God created the world, human beings, us, we're power hungry. It starts with the tower of Babylon. It continues. And he says, this, this is happening all the time. And he continues by the way, and says, you know, that there isn't this sort of total totalitarian regime. He says in his time, he said, you know, it's, but, but he says, you know, you hear of stories and you see things and it's, it, it's not simple. And, and thus, if someone is a citizen under a tyrannical uh, uh, regime, you can get locked up for, for nothing that you did. And that is an evil that befalls you. And Maimonides says that's, 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 it's, it's another almost, it's, it's a, it's a sort of manifestation of the natural world that God created. God creates the world to decay. And so through, there are these means of destruction or, 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 or power struggles between human beings. Okay. But what's the worst of all, right? This is the self-help crying out. The evils of the third kind are those that are inflicted upon any individual among us by his own action. This is what happens in the majority of cases. And these evils are much more numerous than those of the second kind, or the first for that matter. All men lament over evils of this kind. And it is only seldom that you find one who is not guilty of having brought upon himself he who is reached by them deserves truly to be blamed. He says, the finale, you want the real truth? It's us. It's your bad diet because you don't care about the candies and stuff that you eat because you're not exercising even though you should because you haven't sent that sorry apology letter because you said nasty words and you know that you should, but your ego doesn't let you. He says, this is the biggest evil of them all. It happens every day. No one escapes this. Everyone knows it's problematic. And, and to conclude what we have here in our first stop, and again, we could have, we could have taken this many different ways, but I think this is, again, notice that I've, I've skipped the Talmud, right? That's a big one. I, I've skipped the Talmud because Talmud, I, to, Talmud focuses more on, on understanding the relationship between good things happening and evil. I think one of the most you know, profound cases is Rabbi Akiva and Ish Gamzo, sort of their, their perceptions of evil. Or, or when something supposedly bad happens, is it really bad or not? It's this you know, fascinating debate. And then sort of contrast from that, they're talking about demons, and they're talking about you know, nasty spiritual beings that try and disrupt but, 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 you know, put, and again, Maimonides is sort of veering away from that. He says, it's all natural. Because all you're going to get from me, the only thing that is not right and natural, so to speak, is that the way God, the, the, the sort of supernatural way in which God created the world, created it naturally, things happen. But the, but the graver reasons, the more common reasons for why there's evil, we do it to ourselves, either our leaders and then one could say after the second course of evil, oh, it's the leaders, it's not us. It's not, you know, simple folk. He says, no, no, no. We're the most common causes of evil. Now, when we close the curtain here, you know, we're ninth, heading to the 10th century, uh, 11th, sorry, century, um, we, 12th actually, but we're sort of shifting from the Geonic period, I mean to say, of, of, of the birth of Jewish philosophy of rationalism, of shifting away from a Talmudic view that on the one hand wants to talk about why evil occurs and different perceptions of evil vis-a-vis -vis good and God. It's full of demons. It's full of, you know, uh, uh, mezikim, things that try and harm us. But, but then our, our, our rationalists, our Jewish philosophers take this a completely different 
way. And you know what? It's almost as if sort of all these images of our, you know, red horns and demons and things is being erased from history. They, they, it's simply, it's forget about this. This is not evil. Evil is what we do. I want us to take back power back to into our own hands. I want us to be responsible of our actions. That's this, this seems to be the bottom line here. You, you want to do good, and by the way, this fits in with Maimonides' theology also of that. It's not that the commandments given to the Jewish people give them some upper hand. It's God wants everyone to reach perfection. And the way that we, the Jews, are able to reach perfection is, is, is through is through the Bible, right? So there's this universal idea, this, this bridge between Athens and Jerusalem that says it's time to bring, you know, you can even almost think about living in our times today, right? The, the rise of the individual, loneliness, extremism, many different things, right? Sachs in his book, the late Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talks about this, you know, makes a brilliant case in morality. One can understand where arguments about evil come from when we take in the context of what's happening in the world. It's very difficult to understand these texts without looking at what's going on in the world. And Maimonides' world is going through a revolution. It's being flooded by rationalist Greek texts that have been translated into Judo-Arabic. Jews are reading them and they're confused. They're confused because their Talmud tells them about demons and the Bible tells them about this evil serpent. And Maimonides needs to consolidate between what they grew up with and what they're being told now and finding this, this, this utmost truth. That's this ends. We're going to bring down the curtain on this. This sort of this first. We're not. It's not. It's not the first step in our narrative, but it's one of them. And it's definitely, as we are going to see in a moment, we might think that what we're about to read, the Jewish mystics, Kabbalists, is a stark, you know, sort of an extreme contrary to Maimonides. But what I'd like us to think about, to ponder over, is how similar. The wild texts we're about to read are in dialogue with Maimonides. So here we, we, we now shift. We, we, we sort of left the Middle East and, you know, we, we've left Egypt. We move on to 13th century, about, you know, 100 years later, a little less. And we start in Provence. We start in Arles and, and, and we move on to, to Soria. And here we're going to focus on, uh, uh, you know, the the uh, there was a famous, uh, there were two famous brothers living in Soria in uh, uh, northern uh, northern Castile, uh, the Cohen brothers, not, not you know, not the movie, not the directors, Rabbi Yitzchak and Rabbi Yaakov Cohen. And we are going to read to my mind, when I first read this a few years ago, this is, this, is, this is one of the most secretive texts on the origins of evil. And it is simply one of the, what, it's, it's mind boggling. And what, what I want us to be careful with before we start reading this, is to understand two things. The first one that must be understood is that according to carriers of mystical traditions, Kabbalists, it is clear beyond any doubt that there are hierarchies of secrets, right? There's, there are secrets to do with how God created the world. There are secrets, you know, one of the most top secret, the sort of, you know, the like that place where you have, you know, these questions, are there UFOs, you know, hiding, whatever. One of the most secretive, you know, we don't want to touch, don't want to even address, is the origins of evil. This is one of the stickiest questions. And so the first thing we need to understand is what we're about to read is super sensitive. And we need to ask ourselves why. And this then leads to the, to the second issue. And that is, let's try and not be tempted 
to whenever we start reading a text and like we saw in the Bible, you know, there's this initial understanding. It's, it's, it's impossible not to sort of grasp an initial understanding of a text, even if it means we don't understand, but there is something we take in. I want us to sort of try and stop, create a barrier between that initial take in and, and try and see a bigger picture here. Okay. So Rabbi Isaac the Kohen um, is part of a group of Kabbalists, sort of uh, uh, very early, uh, early mid 13th century in Soraya, and he carries secret traditions. Well, let's let's see what he has to say. And these are secrets of an uprising happening in heaven. Right? This 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 is no one has talked about this before. No one has talked about an uprising happening in God's kingdom before. No one has dared talk about this. Where does it appear for the first time? Where does the tradition start? On these beautiful purple fuchsia lavender patches in Provence, secrets carried and reach uh, uh, and reach Spain. This is how he begins. Seeing your great desire, he's writing to a student, seeing your great desire to climb up the ladder of wisdom, to know mysteries and to obtain the path of plots. In Hebrew, it's mezimot, right? This literally is, you know, like, the plot that, 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 that takes down Caesar. This is the sort of plot we're talking about, not an innocent plot, a mezima. And even though you know that this path has not been taken uh, apart from two, uh, apart from two or three pips on the heads ahead of a prince, they are the old sages of Spain who used the hall of Samel. No one has uttered the chambers except for a few, a few seedlings, nothing into where we're about to enter. And it is a long and deep path, distant from all those who obtain knowledge, who haven't delved into depths of the concealed emanation. It is the depths of good and the depths of evil, apart from a select few. The only ones who have achieved this are a select few who meditate the few relics of who God calls. He starts his letter to his student, whoever that may be, by saying, make no mistake. I'm about to share with you something, and in a moment we'll know where he gets this information from, which is fascinating. I'm I'm about to share with you information that it's you, you kind of you barely count them on a finger, right? Those mitbodedim, those lone mystics, the truly, and this is by the way, this is anthropologically fascinating. Rabbi Tzchak is actually telling us if you ask me in my time, the number of people that God actually really calls to them nothing. Okay. Now let us turn to speak of the legions of heavenly prosecutors since the time they were born and then suddenly melted. I have to stop for a moment to talk about the word melted. This is fascinating. Anyone that that buys a modern Hebrew cookbook and, and goes to the section of cakes, pastries, there is a word, a verb that, that, that reappears like the the, the 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 witch from Kansas, and the, the wicked witch, and that is nimoch, right? The, it, it's what happens when you put the cake in your mouth. It's the way it, it, it melts in your mouth. It is fascinating. This These texts must be read in, read in Hebrew for the delicacy in which the words are chosen to try and portray a point. And we must remember that the, the assumption, the working assumption is that these texts are in dialogue with Moses Maimonides because everyone's reading Moses Maimonides. Other troubles have occurred since the rise of Jewish philosophy. People see the troubles are happening. People are scared by different demons and they're not sure what to believe. 
So he's talking here. He's going to tell us about these legions of Mekatregim, prosecutors, right, saying ill words about the, the people of Israel since the time they were born and then suddenly melted. That leaves you to sort of try and assume, right, they were born, they weren't destroyed, they weren't annihilated, they, were, they melted. What does that mean? Something that melts becomes elements and then shifts into something else. It's very eerie. When I was in the great city of Arles, the Kabbalist of these secrets showed me an ancient manuscript written in a script different to ours in the name of a rabbi and Gaon Rabbi Matzliach, son of the elderly Gaon Paltia of the Holy Jerusalem. Now notice that, that one, can't, one can't help, and this is why I mentioned before with Maimonides, the shift from Maimonides, the bridge being built between Athens and Jerusalem, and it's somehow overriding certain superstitious, we'll call them, aspects of the Talmud. One can't help but wonder whether this beginning is trying to create legitimacy by saying, I have a secret that goes way back to Jerusalem. This, I, I, I'm carrying traditions. You know what? Yeah, Moses, Maimonides, the great eagle, Kvodobim, Kumamunach, respect, but, but, but there were other secret traditions. And the one who brought it was a great and wise pietist called Rabbi Gershom of Damascus, for he came from there, but now settles in Arles. And now I begin to present the band of ministers ruling over their first and last soldiers, minions, all created from one emanation. Very important. I'm about to tell you about things that were born and then melted, but they all come from one emanation, one source. From the source of tshuva. Wow. We know the tshuva, which is not repentance. It's a, it's a problematic mistranslation. That the, the, the power, the force of return, to return to oneself, to return to one's source, is one of the things that is created before the creation of the world. And he's already telling us there is, there is a tire link between these evil forces I'm about to present that were born and melted and the power, the force of tshuva. It makes you wonder about this biblical verse of God saying, I create good and life, evil and death. All comes from me. And yet, we can't help but, but, but fear certain things, but wonder about, and I'm not even talking about, you know, Satan. I'm just talking about having an amulet in your home for, for your, you, you are genuinely worried that certain evil spirits are coming. One must ask, should I be worried or not worried? They're on the one hand, they create, they sort of seem to be connected to God. On the other hand, they are so, so far away and separate that, 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 that we're, we, we really are, we really are very scared. And there is a screen, masach, right? The word masach is fascinating because masach is, is, it has a connotation of idolatry. You go back to the golden calf, the word masach. Make no mistake, a computer screen in Hebrew is a tzag, not a masach. We must never say that a computer screen or a TV screen is a masach because that implies that we are watching idolatry. They are tzagim. So we are talking here about um, a screen which parts between this emanation and that of the emanation of holy virtues. The parting screen emanated from the force of tshuva. It was emanated on condition. This is interesting. We have a contract. It was emanated on condition that from it shall emanate good and evil emanations, both for sustenance and eternal standing and for decay and destruction. And there are no beings, neither above nor below, who have obtained the secret 
of these worlds apart from those part, uh, parted virtues and legions emanating from them. So this, this is fascinating, right? This is the sort of secrecy of evil. We're now already getting into the evil itself. He says, there are a few things I want to tell you. He says, the first thing I want to tell you is, is that the, the only ones that can claim they know something about this, this, this parting, right? It's a parting. It's, it's, it's a rift between good and evil. The only ones that understand this are the ones that come from that side, that created this parting. That's, that's you know, don't, don't even try. Don't even think about it. And yet, and, and like a true Kabbalist, he'll then go on to explain what it is like. And he will paint it in clear pictures for us to really take in a visual, which is so tempting to fully absorb. And this is perhaps one of the most difficult things when coming to read a Kabbalistic text. To on the one hand, read things that are so at times crisp, clear, and then yet wonder, what does the author beg of us? And it is accepted by the sages of old, right? So now, he, now he's talking about the beginning. We're now, you know, it's, there's no time for, for introductions. Let's just start. And it's accepted by the sages of old, as my brother, uh, Rabbi Yaakov, as the Chronol of Rachel learned, as it is written in the manuscript of the Holy Pietist mentioned above, that the head of this emanation is named Masuchiel. And we know that many a common form of a name for angel is at the end we have El, God, meaning it's a servant of God, messenger deriving, emanating from God. And many times the first part of the, of the name of an angel is implies its job. Right? A- angels, unlike human beings, right? We, we know how to do many things at once. Uh, angels only know how to do one thing at once, but they do it perfectly. So for example, in the Bible, Raphael, the, the, the angel called Raphael, Rafa means heal. He is the angel and his job is to heal. Gavriel, Gever from, from you know, judgment, he's, he's, he comes to do judgment and so on and so forth. So who is Masuchiel? He is the angel, Masach, the, the screen. He, he creates the screen. He's the one where this, this, this rift in this emanation starts, which were then born and melted. For he parts and is the inception of the emanation emanating from him, from God. And before they came into being, a certain world emanated of foreign forms and damning images. The name of the prime minister of all soldiers is Kamtiel. We won't, we might get, we might have time to get back to this name, but for, for now, he's another nasty one. Kamtiel. These were cruel and, and began prosecuting and, confu- and causing confusion uh, the, and confusing the emanation. And immediately the loud cry of the minister of Chuva named Karuziel said, Masuchiel, Masuchiel, destroy what you have created. Gather your emanation to you, for it is not the will of the God of the King of Kings. Blessed be he, and these worlds, uh, that these worlds should exist. Right? He, he started. The implication is that this is created by God's decree. Oh, God's okay with this. And then things start getting out of hand. Whatever that means, supposedly, what are we meant to think? And then God comes and says, that's it. Just close the curtain on this. Close the screen. I, I don't, you know, the mistake, big mistake. No, no, abort, abort, abort. So they returned as in the beginning and melted. It's, I can't stress enough how this word nimoch is, it's just an amazing word because it really makes you wonder what happened to them. Their sort of emanation being naught. Afisa. Now, naught does not mean annihilated. It means you, you've shifted to, 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 to naught. But naught is, is also something. A parable was told by the Eon Circle, another Kabbalistic group, perhaps before the Cohen brothers. 
It was like, a, it is like a wick, sucking from oil, lighting and making bright, to which it returns and becomes extinguished to naught. Right, so the Ian Circle, who also know this tradition, or some of them, or few of them, or their, their grand teacher says, you want a visual of the nasty things that happened before this world, of the origins of evil? Take a visual of this, of this wick. Right? And it really makes one wonder, right? Who lit the wick in the first place? And, and, and sort of, you know, there are many, many questions here. Okay. It continues. After this, another world emanated out of foreign forms and damning depictions. There, the head of their emanation is a minister of legions, and he's called Bliel. Bliel literally means without God. These are worse than the first ones to prosecute and cause havoc of all kinds of emanation until it was decreed by order of the king of kings that their absence and their absence came out uh, came out once like the first ones. So we had a second attempt and it seems right and it's clear that the second attempt was even worse, more stubborn, more damning. And the same thing repeats itself. God then comes and says, no, but bad idea. After that, a world uh, after that. And after that world, the third world emanated from foreign forms and damning depictions, more so than the first or the second. There, the head of emanation, the prime minister of legions, is called Etiel. These are the worst kind. Their will and desire to crown the Godhead. We are talking about a coup, a coup in the heavens. Has anything ever been, has, has such a thought ever been penned in the history of the Hebrew book? And until these beautiful surroundings in Provence. They want to crown the Godhead to defile it and chop off its branches until the world of the until the word of the will, until the word of the will for their absence to be like that of the first and second. Done. Not, not going to have this anymore. But wh why did this happen at the outset? It was decreed that such an emanation as this shall not pass into the air of the world. It shall not be remembered nor mentioned. And these are the worlds of which the sages uh, blessed be memory taught, he built and destroyed worlds. Ah, oh, he says, right? So this is what's bothering our Kabbalists. We know of a Midrash. We know of, a, a you know, this parable that tells us that God, what is he doing before creating this world, right? Like any innovator, you need to go through some no's, go through some failures, failures, so to speak, in order to succeed. So, so he he's creating and destroying worlds. You want to understand what that means? It's this. There was a rebellion in the heavens and until God shut it down. So here we're talking about a, a narrative that's telling us about the origins of evil. And as I mentioned before, it's very tempting because one of the things we have to remember when we read a Kabbalistic text is nothing is as it seems. What's really going on here? What are we really meant to, what is the sort of the cognitive, even emotional journey we're meant to go through, our comprehension? When, when, when we come to read this, what, what, what's going on? Now, we would have thought that that's it, right? It, there, there was this attempted coup in the upper worlds, which, by the way, began with legions created by God, but, but that, that's not it. And now I will map out for you the order of the names of ministers, right? There's a continuation of emanation that exists to this very day. That's only about those worlds. But they only melted. No one tells us. But one understands, one must derive from the word melted, the continuation and, and the new characters that enter the stage of demonic history. 
there, there is a way they got to get in. Although their essence and roles, so, right, these are the ministers of jealousy and hatred. Although their essence and roles are real and truthful, they do not lie amongst themselves. Wow. Talk about a compliment for forces of evil. The prime minister, chief prosecutor of jealousy is Samel. The second is Zafiel, right? Samel literally means the drug of God. And Zafiel means, you know, the sort of anger of God. It is already known amongst those who philosophize that, that, uh, uh, that there, there is nothing corporal above. So one can't help but remember when we read this text, we read the words jealousy and hatred, at least to my mind, to jump back to the most common form of evil, according to Maimonides. It's things we bring to ourselves. And perhaps what this text is talking about is creating a link because to Kabbalists, unlike Maimonides, evil exists. But there is a link here, perhaps a derivative of some sort, a link between our nasty attributes when we don't handle ourselves, when we don't collect ourselves, and these ministering angels and what's going on. And, and, and what's worse, so, so he goes on and says, look, we know that in this world, according to philosophers, that's Maimonides and his gang, um, these things can't really exist in this world be, because in this world, you, you are cloaked with matter. But you know how he ends this passage? By then talking about demons, by talking about, and then it gets real. He says, there are three layers in the firmaments. There are three layers in the heavens, in the sky. And, 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 these, and these three are, are filled with different types of demons, real ontological existences that try and disrupt our lives. And one can't help but ask, what is their origin and how is it connected to our own folly? Okay. We now must shift uh, uh, to Barcelona. Uh, a great hero of mine, Rabbi Yosef Ben Shalom Ashkenazi, um, because what we're going to do now, and this is to sort of conclude, is we are going to shift from, if Maimonides talks about there not being any real ontological existence to evil, but it's all our doings, we then have a very different narrative told by uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Cohen, and he's telling us about this long-lasting tradition, and he's telling us about this very bothersome uprising, coup in the heavens, and then it emanates all the way to the birth of demons that actually exist and try and disrupt. And we're left somewhat confused because it's a bit difficult to understand, are they, are they against us or are they with us? They're clearly against us, but they're also created by God. So for this, we're now going to move on. And this was, this was in the heavens, and they sort of conclude with just touching upon the surface of evil that exists in the world. But now we really want to touch upon secrets of evil manifestations upon earth. And as mentioned before, you know, if 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 one of the if evil is one of the big no-nos, right? We're talking about things that very few know about, then those that know about them and write about them, whatever they write, you, you want to pay attention to their teachings, especially to their other teachings, because it implies that they know other stuff as well. So let, let's let's start with, with Ashkenazi's understanding of evil. Know that the cherpa, disgrace, is the contrary of kavod. He starts with this classic dualistic look, and this is a classic Zoharic, Kabbalistic view that there is there are the forces of good, forces of evil, there are the spherotic Godhead. Remember, there are those that want to crown the Godhead, and they are the others, they are the tumorot. And what do they want? They want to disgrace 
the Godhead. That is what they try and do. They try to convert the respect into disgrace. They try and literally cause a decay upon the Godhead. So now we know something about the intent. And Freshkenazi says this is real. There is a real battle going on in the heavens. Okay. It, it's still up there. And then he'll add, and now another thing we must understand that what we are touching upon here is these are secrets that are scattered throughout texts purposely because they are so secretive. And, and the pupil is meant to, to sort of piece them together and, and, and tie them of contradictions and try and paint some form of picture that makes sense. So, for example, we are told in a different, ver- in a different part of the book, the wicked one who often frequents hell, cleaves to it until he transmigrates himself into hell. This is is a fascinating instance where we are told that that it's not only a divine creation, there there isn't a real place called hell, but that that the evil can actually become that. Hell is this burning furnace, which originates perhaps from texts we read before, and, and what keeps roasting the fire is, 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 is the souls of the wicked. These souls, right? So every now, now we move on to all souls. All souls depart from the world, right? You, 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 the body has sort of breathed, breath, you know, had its last breath. And they're sent to the tumorot, to the other side. Ah, so there's, there's, there's a purpose. We're told here quite clearly, you, you, you finish your last breath, Spirit departs, the nefesh and the soul, the neshama, and you're met by the tumrot, the others. They have a role. And that which is sentenced to death shall die, and that which is sentenced to transmigrate shall transmigrate until they, the spirits, have served their judgment. Now, this is very interesting because first we are told that there is a difference between death. Death, according to Ashkenazi, much like hell, is an actual ontological existence. Right. One of the claims Ashkenazi makes is it's not fair if a person kills someone and someone causes a mass genocide. How can a philosopher tell me that death is simply the opposite of life? That's not possible. That's not fair. Whatever happened to God's judgment? If, if, if death is the opposite of life, it simply means you've breathed, you breathe your last breath and that's it. You're lifeless. Then, then where's sort of crime and punishment? So he starts off by saying, Every soul departs the world, and those that have you know, really done a bad job, that they get death. And, and, and death is either hell or death is, is, you know, we might see in a moment, death is a sort of severe form of, 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 of kind of hell, or they're transmigrated, right? A, a form of punishment that you can become a, a porcupine, you can become a eucalyptus tree. It all depends on, you know, the, the sin that you have committed. Okay, so I know things are a bit scattered, but I purposely do this, especially here, because anthropologically as the 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 culture of of departing secrets and especially to do with evil kind of hits the surface a bit more than it did in Provence it's still very very secretive it's very confusing and 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 whether it's scary or not is 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 a question that needs to be asked okay and now and now we really I want us to have Edgar Allan Poe in the back of our minds so we've talked about what happens when we depart the world but remember how the how Rabbi Tzakakoyen finishes his his, his piece talking about the demons that, that are in this actual world. And as distinct from, from Maimonides, Ashkenazi is now going to tell us a secret about the impure birds. 
Now, the impure birds in the Bible, right, you have, for example, different uh, genuses of owlets, of, uh, um, of vultures, of hawks, and so on and so forth. He says there's a reason each one has the name that it has, because the whenever you see, for example, a raven, you must know that it is ontologically connected by the, by, by, by the spirit, the evil spirit from which it is rooted. So, for example, the Athene, the, the, the Kos, Right, uh, 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 right. We're talking about a, a type of owl. Literally means right the, the the cup, the cup of death, the poison of death, embarrassment, ruckus, and tremor. For they are embarrassed, not knowing. Right, what happens when the evil spirit, which is ontologically connected to this type of owlet, what happens when it tries to capture a soul as it's going up to receive its judgment? Right. We thought it was simple. We thought there's this divine plan where we sort of, you know, we die, we depart from this world and then we get our judgment. And that's it. No, no, no. It's not that simple. The Tumorot, the other side, that perhaps the Im- implicit here is that God has made them to have a certain role. By their very nature, it's not enough for them. It's almost like a Frankenstein, a sort of a Frankenstein with with quality control question mark. Right. So. So the souls are embarrassed, not knowing whence they came and to where they're headed. We, 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 this is what happens to a soul. Or there's another type of bird, a type of owl that tries to confiscate souls. You're meant to get a certain judgment, but no, you should know. And he says this, by the way, not in a scary tone. This is said in a very matter of factual, scientific kind of language. You should simply know that there are evil forces represented by the impure birds in, in, in that we see that are doing nasty, nasty, scary things to to souls and spirits. It's almost as if they are trying to disrupt the divine plan, much like we read before that they try and cause a disgrace. And yet one can't help but feel that in the very same ink that writes these, that that creates these depictions, we also told that that it's part of the godly plan. They, They have a role, an important role. And one of the most extreme, and here I'll end to, to open it up, one of the most extreme cases is a form of vulture called the rechem, which literally also means womb. Now, Ashkenazi tells us there is the sphere of Bina, the womb of all souls and spirits in the world, in, in the sort of the, the, the right side, the good side. It's equivalent in the other side is the rechem. And, and, and this rechem is named for mercy, for he gives mercy to the wicked, more than the rest of the Tumorot. He's trying to create even more disruption. And there are those who say he is in charge of love and fornication, and he sends fornicators on their way. This is horrific. But then he gives his own two cents and says, and you should know what is said in the Agada, in the Midrash, for it's herald. When this bird cries, its final cry in the time to come, you will know that Messiah is coming. And to my mind, Ashkenazi tells us, it is for she is merciful. That is the otherness of internal mercy, and her cry will will signal redemption and salvation. Close curtain. Wow. The ending of one of the most powerful depictions of these, 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 by the way, I I, want to make in brackets, if you, if you try and view Zoharic texts, other Kabbalistic texts, they are far more gruesome. Ashkenazi is as scientifically sort of to the point as you get. And yet you can't help but not feel that there is this, this, this almost binary on the one hand, good, but on the other hand, evil. 
And he concludes this, the climax with the Messiah saying, you know what? The worst of all, the one that, that has most mercy on all the wicked, it's the one that's going to call for Messiah. To my mind, it can't help but bring back this, this initial verse we started with, right? With, 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 with the serpent. One can look at this as, as, as clear deception, but also as the, the, the primordial existence of evil, not having a choice, but to have God written within it, because it was a decree from the very outset. So to conclude, what I've tried to do is tell a story uh, that, that isn't going to give us nightmares. While we've taken this sort of journey that, that you know, tells a narrative that goes from rational to, to supernatural, we end with God's presence. We end by understanding that perhaps one of Kabbalah's greatest gifts, both from Rabbi Yitzchak Cohen's text and Ashkenazi, is that this branding of these real forces that are evil, their branding is so powerful that from the very outset, the biblical outset, we are made to believe that they actually exist. They come to disrupt. They do exist, but that they just exist in their own for their own sake, and they don't. It seems text after text that these texts want to teach us that, that, that there is a greater message here, that those who seek understand that there is comfort in the presence of God and understanding that all of this evil stems ultimately from the same source. So that's, that's, that's the story. Um, I, I hope it's been um, coherent. Um, and, uh, you know, any, any questions or comments you have, uh, feel free. Uh, someone tells us they lived and studied abroad in Sarai for two months. Did you know that Rabbi Yitzchak, that this was the birthplace of one of the greatest texts dealing with, with, the, with the uprising against God in the heavens? Ethan, did you know this? I, I, I had no idea. <laughs> I, I was excited to learn that. I studied, I studied Spanish literature while I was there, but this has been a, an exciting revelation on that. So thank you. My pleasure. Yes, Madi. Uh, thank you. Uh, well, that was all way over my head, uh, but I, I do have a, a couple of questions, if I may. Uh, uh, in the beginning, you, you talked about uh, uh, with the snake Arum uh, being naked, and, and you were saying that it also means evil? Uh, I was saying that literally it's... So here's the not the problem, the challenge with choosing a biblical translation, right? Starting from the King James translation, you have many different words that, you know, one wonders how you translate them. So a room literally means naked, but right. in, you know, for example, art scroll, uh, uh, you know, I, I read it as nakedness, uh, sorry, cunningness. Yeah, deceitful as well, right? You know, right? But that's but that's already a commentary on the text. Okay, I see. Right. But it, yeah. in modern Hebrew or biblical Hebrew, other than this uh, verse, it normally means naked. Is that right? Exactly. And so, 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 so this is fascinating, Marty, because then no, the, the, this, the birth of this translation strengthens the branding of an evil that exists in and of itself. It's all of a sudden it has this cunning agenda without, you know, we, we, we stripped it from this very pure beginning of it, it's naked. And, and trying to understand, it steals from us the ability to try and understand this is the problem with translations, what na what the text wanted to tell us by it being naked. Right, right. Thank you. Uh, and you had another question or? Well, uh, I, I, if, if you could just paraphrase in your own words, uh, with Rambam, you talked about the uh, 
um, the three t- portrayals of evil. And, I, and you know, the last one, the third one is, you know, what, what we do to ourselves. That's pretty simple. Can you paraphrase the first two in your own words? Yeah. The first one is uh, God created the world in such a way that there are going to be earthquakes. There are going to be fires, right? The great fire of Chicago. They're, they're just bad things happen because um, the way things come into being is by other things being destroyed. Think, for example, of feces and flies and food, you know, sorry for the sure, visual. Sure, that makes sense. I'm with you. Classic, okay. Classic Greek play on just understanding how things work. And the second sure. one, mm-hmm. the second one is tyranny. He, he takes it sort of, he starts, there's actually, there's, there's a lot of the um, structure in Maimonides. He starts with understanding the way God created the world and the source of evil there, very natural one. The second one is understanding governance or governments right how societies you know are ruled and the third one is ourselves and that's the most common and that's you know right right that one i got thank you okay thanks yeah Uh, so someone had asked here uh just about uh, i uh, i skipped a line at the end uh so the raven isn't mercy Uh, i skipped straight to the vulture which is called the rechem and that is sort of like the worst but the best the raven pose raven according to ashkenazi is called an orev, um, literally meaning mixing, and it's quite horrific because it's it's. Um, so what happens is different bits and pieces of of our body decay spiritually when we transgress. The 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 ontological evil that is connected to the rave and the orev, his role or her role is to mix and mesh together and create new creations from these members that have been sort of, you know, uh, um, destroyed due to our transgressing. So it's, it's, it's horrific. It's schizophrenic. By the way, the picture painted about evil, oh, sorry, darkness in hell is one of complete and utter schizophrenia. It is the lack of ability to understand the difference between things. And I find this to be very important, especially given that the first ministering angel in our story is called Masachiel, the, the, the one who creates this this rift, the screen between things, the ability to differentiate is lost. And when is it lost most? The deeper you go into hell and death, you simply cannot differentiate anything from anything. And this to Ashkenazi and other Kabbalists is, is the most gruesome form of, of existence or non-existence, perhaps. That's a very interesting question. So Rachel asks, even though God created evil, do, um, do we not think God has some mercy for evil doing as well? Like it has its like that's a fascinating question, you know. It it really goes back to trying to understand what was the initial intent in giving the first chance of creating these worlds. You know, it's very hard not to connect, sort of try and understand the the, the modus operandi that that created that scheme to your question and 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 God's mercy, though, without a doubt. Excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Schnitzer, for joining us today. That was a fascinating topic. And thank you all for being here and learning with us. Um, as Rabbi Shmuley mentioned, our next class will be on Tuesday, Green Burial and Jewish Law with Rabbi Adina Lewitz uh, at 1 p.m. Pacific. So we hope that you can join us for that as well. And uh, thanks again for being here. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybatemadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.